Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. We're delighted to have you participate and attend in today's teleconference to talk about hot topics and current issues going on in the world of employment-based immigration. On my panel today, I have two wonderful, smart, brilliant Murthy Law Firm attorneys, Anna Stepanova and Adam Rosen, both in our wonderful cutting-edge work doing special projects for the Murthy Law Firm. There's a lot of new stuff. I wish I could say it was exciting stuff going on with the government and with USCIS in particular. Not all of it is great news for you all as business owners or HR managers or immigration specialists. A lot of the new information or the latest updates deal with fee increases, reevaluation re of EB1 extraordinary ability type of petitions, new border security fees, etc., etc. So let's start off we're going to start discussing the filing fee increases which across the board have increased by an average of 10 percent and they really become effective from november 23rd which is just a couple weeks away so anna what are the specific filing fees that have changed and uh you know what i mean and by the way it's not 10 percent in the employment-based world it seems like a lot more so, Anna, would you should go over some of the specific fees? Sure, Sheila. Most frequently used forms um, include petition for a non-immigrant worker on form I-129. That increased by $5 from $120 to $325. Um, the increase was more significant for the I-140 petition, immigrant petition for alien worker, which increased by $105 from 475 to 580 And Form 485, Adjustment of Status Application, um, has increased uh, by $55, which is now $985. Um, uh, uh, some other forms that are also frequently used include um, I-765, that's an application for employment authorization. That went up from 340 to $380. Um, most significantly, um, a form that's used very often with um, I-129 petitions, uh, that's uh, namely request for premium processing on form I-907. Uh, that went up from 1000 to $1,225. I mean, it sounds so outrageous to think that the fees have increased so dramatically. And, you know, just again, by way of background, it's part of the mandatory biennial fee review of USCIS, which is once every two years. But they do make it a point to say, we haven't increased all fees. We've actually reduced some or left some the same. So out of the hundreds and hundreds of different form varieties, Adam, how many are, have been left either unchanged or actually reduced? Well, Sheila, it's a good thing you asked because the N-400, the application for naturalization for citizenship, has in fact remained unchanged. So that f was one fee that has not gone up. It has also not gone down. It is also the only form with an unchanged fee. The only form that has a reduction in fee is the I-539. It's gone down from 300 to $290, which is a bit nice since the I-539 is a commonly used form to change status in the United States to F-1, to B, for H-4 extensions, for L-2 extensions. So it is a commonly used form. and it is $10 less. You know, and it's interesting because in the, when they introduced it, they said there have been fee increases and decrease. There's been an increase and decrease, but very cleverly it was just one item. 
Um, and, and I know that, you know, at one time, many people thought it was okay to increase fees if the service improved, but I think woefully the services have not dramatically improved, uh, increased, or, you know, the fees have increased, but the services have not increased or improved. And there's always been a concern that, you know, if it was a private business and we kept increasing our fees constantly every two years like this, we'd have shut down our business. If anything, we've decreased our fees, I think, over 15 years by and large at the firm, at the Murthy Law Firm, and we're very, very, you know, reasonable and effective. But the truth is the government can do it. It's a monopoly, and welcome to the government, I guess. I think so. I think that the expectation is that when they do these reviews that the likelihood is that fees will go up, so there probably will be another fee increase when they do their next review in two years. And this is in part, as they've explained, tied to inflation because they've built in the cost of improvements that are needed to technology in order to process the applications and not simply the time and manpower that's associated with actually processing the application form. It's interesting when they say consumer price index because consumer price index has gone down in the last two years from 10 years ago. Um, okay, Anna, so let's talk a little bit about the border security fee, which is a whopping $2,000. We understand it applies to certain H&L petitions. Would you, would you please explain that? Sure. Um, yes, it does not apply to all petitions, so you have to be careful and you need to understand what the rule is. It uh, came out on August 13th this year when the president signed uh, a new law that requires a submission of an additional $2,000 filing fee for some, but not all, H-1B petitions and uh, $2,250 for certain L-1 petitions. And as you said, um, that's a border security fee that's going to be used towards border security. And the new fee is a separate filing fee in addition to the base filing fee. Again, uh, as a reminder, it, um, it is going up from 320 to $325. Uh, and also the fraud fee, which is um, the $500 fee for an initial petition, uh, not required for a second or subsequent petition, and also the training fee, which is either 750 for the employer with fewer than 25 workers and 1500 for employers with 25 workers or more, and optional premium processing fee, which, which is also going up significantly. Okay, so we say it applies to some, but not all H-1 petitions. Um, would you go into a little more detail on that, Adam? Sure, Sheila. The new fee has been effective since August 13, 2010, when it was signed into law. Uh, USCIS didn't issue any formal guidance until October 7th, and the guidance is interim guidance, and they're going to be issuing, I think it's still going to be under review and may be further um, guidance issued, but there is a Q&A that's been issued outlining the details of the new fee and how to handle it, which um, basically has indicated that uh, well, first of all, it's applicable to all petitions that have been postmarked on August 14th, 2010 or later. And USCIS um, has said, and we've actually seen at least one, um, a request for evidence for petitions that have been submitted without the fee, if they have a question about it. And USCIS has indicated, and they seem to be accepting an affidavit or statement signed by a petitioner's representative indicating that they're not, um, they're not subject to the fee because of 
even if they have the number of employees that triggers the requirement, they don't have enough H and L workers. Uh, and while this is the state of things now, it's certainly possible whether it's a change in guidance or um, a change in how the cases are actually being processed, that an RFE can come from USCIS asking for supporting evidence, like whether it's payroll records or W-4s showing the actual number of employees and whether or not um, a company has the number of H and L workers that they, or, or more, that they claim to have. Okay, thank you, Adam. Anna, if I'm an employer, how on earth do I know if I'm subject to this additional $2,000 whopping fee on top of the 1500 or the 750 the 500 the 325 I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I guess they're trying to shut down the H1 and L1 business. Well, well that is, um, you, you just need to apply uh, a simple formula, and the formula says that the petitioners who employ 50 or more employees um, and that's the first condition. The second condition, both of which have to be met, is that 50% or more of their employees are in H currently in H-1B or L-1A or L-1B status. So just to um, summarize again, to uh, clarify, if you have 50 um, workers or more, that's not the end of your inquiry. You also need to see if 50, at least 50% of your workers are currently in H-1B or L-1A or L-1B status. And um, that's when you will be required to submit this um, new 2000 or $2,250 fee for L-1 petitions. Okay, what about the additional fee that applies only to new petitions? That only applies to, exactly, that, that only applies to new petitions um, or uh, it does not apply to extension petitions or amended petitions filed by the same employer. If um, a worker has been sponsored for an H-1B and uh, they change employees, then uh, the new employer will be required to submit that fee again. Okay, so the interesting thing here is for a while there was a little bit of debate by USCIS about the L2 people on EAD uh, being subject to it, but now the USCIS has agreed that anybody using an EAD based on the spouse's L1A or L1B on the L2 is not counted as part of the 50% calculation because I, I think they realize how difficult it would be because most employers just don't track that. It's not their responsibility when it's the L2 because the individual applies through the spouse's company. And so the question really becomes, I guess, uh, you know, if what if a company has a lot, 50 or more employees, but only there are a handful of H-1B or L-1 workers, uh, you know, what kind of proof the government would require to show the exemption from this additional $2,000 fee? And I think Adam sort of touched upon it briefly where he talked about payroll records and tax records and W-2s and, you know, maybe a sworn affidavit or an a a statement from the employer or the business owner or the or president. Even, even I-9 or even I-9 forms that would indicate that the person provided their H-1B or their L-1 I-94 card with their passport in order to provide employment verification, that would indicate the basis for their employment, which would show HRL. Um, or if it's a U.S., they're U.S. citizens or permanent residents who provided a U.S. passport or a green card to show that they, um, what their status is and what the basis for their authorization to work. And so that would be another way to show the um, exemption 
from it. But again, if someone is going to decide to use the I-9 form shield, it's very important to make sure that the I-9 has been completed correctly because providing an incorrectly completed I-9 form to USCIS can certainly lead to an enforcement action by USCIS, fraud detection and national security, or immigration and customs enforcement against an employer that has disclosed to immigration a violation on the I-9 form. Okay. Uh, and apparently they are planning to issue RFEs on this if they're not clear, demanding that 2,000 fee or proof from the employer. So, Adam, can the beneficiary uh, pay this fee? Because if the employer says, hey, it's not my problem, I'm helping you to get this job, you need to pay this fee, what's the government position? The government's position is that the petitioner has to pay the fee and not the beneficiary. The government's position is simply that the company wants to employ this person, and if it's important to the company to employ this person, then the company is responsible for paying this additional fee. And it's unlikely to change. Okay. And it's usually recommended that it be submitted in a special separate check, just so it's not confused. So, Adam, coming back now, switching from non-immigrant till now we've been talking about the H's and the L, kind of the security fee and the increase in fees. There's a whole new issue about consular processing yes. for immigrant visas. And yes. Uh, you know, what, when, are they, if, when did they become effective, and what well, are the fees? The immigrant visa fees for consular processing cases, and this is a, this is a situation where the, I, where the I-140 petition, this is for the green card, has been approved by immigration and sent over to Department of State and the National Visa Center for the beneficiary to ultimately apply for the immigrant visa or green card visa at the American consular abroad, and then with that come into the U.S. as a permanent resident. So these fees have increased, and they're in effect as of July 13, 2010. The, previously, the fees for employment-based and even family-based um, green card cases were the same, and now the fees are different depending on the type of case, whether it's based on employment with an I-140 or there's a family, family relationship that's sponsoring somebody for a green card. In an employment-based case, filed on the basis of the approved I-140 that I mentioned, it's been increased from $400 to $720. And there is also a new $74 security surcharge fee that's applicable to all visa applicants regardless of the category, and this fee is um, used, this fee used to be included with the $400 base immigrant visa processing fee, but now it's been separated out, so you have a, another way that they've increased the fee. That's a little scary. The whole thing is pretty scary because the increase across the board in most of the fees for the I-129s and I-140s, etc., will all take place right uh, before Thanksgiving. So it's the government's Thanksgiving gift to business owners for putting your life on the line, creating jobs in America and in right. this economy. And the interesting thing about this, and it's probably important to keep in mind, is that the fees are not going to be paid for consular processing case, like an I-140 or an I-130 for a green card, they're not going to be paid until the priority date on that case is likely to be current. Department of State's National Visa Center issues a bill for payment of the fee when the case reaches a certain point that they believe is near the priority date. And so for many people who are going through consular processing, particularly with I-140s, for many of the, the business owners and HR managers and immigration specialists that might be listening to this to to us today, the these fees might not actually be relevant to 
um, those employees because the priority date might not be current for a year, two years, or even three years, at which point the fees might actually be higher than this. Okay, great. Uh, a quick update on the H1 cap numbers. I know all of you are pretty much keeping track of it, especially those you know, who've been filing a lot of H1s in the past. Um, of course, with all of these new fees, you may want to reconsider, and with the general climate and the January 8, 2010 you know, USCIS memo and everything going on in the world, uh, sort of almost targeting H-1B employers, particularly consulting companies. But so far in this year, as of last week, which is October 29th, 2010, there were approximately 45,600 cases filed under the regular cap, which is the 65,000 max. So we're about two-thirds of the way, almost exactly two-thirds of the way. And then out of the master's quota or cap of the total 20,000, there's been over 16,700. There's just 16,700 cap cases have been filed. Um, Adam, are there any H-1B visa numbers still available? F because a lot of people think now that it's past October 1st, we can't file it. Yes, there are numbers available. Grab them now because they may not be available later. And what is the cutoff date for applying for a CAP subject H-1 petition? The uh, CAP cases can continue to be filed until either the CAP is met or the fiscal year ends, which is September 30th, 2011, whichever comes first. Last year, I believe the CAP was Around December met sometime in December, and I think it caught some people by surprise because I know that there are a couple of people who had hired Murthy Law Firm late, um, but that's why it's important to um, go sooner. Okay. And Anna, how does the H-1B cap for fiscal year 2011 compare to the cap in prior years? Uh, that's what Adam started, uh, already mentioned uh, when he said that last year the cap was reached in December. This year it doesn't look like it's going to be reached in December. No one can say for sure, but uh, it's moving a lot slower this year, and there have been much fewer H-1B filings for this fiscal year, 2011, than in previous years, 2010, compared with years before that, 2008 and 2009, as many of our listeners um, may remember, the cap was reached during the initial five days of filing in April. This is a completely different um, uh, this is a complete, completely different environment uh, this year and completely different picture. We still have a lot of numbers available, so as Adam said, grab them uh, when you can. Otherwise, it may be too late and no one knows exactly when. Sure, but for sure. now, it looks like you can still uh, file cases uh, and uh, we are receiving cases on a regular basis for this um, cap season. Yeah, at the multi-law firm, we are really busy filing a lot of cases. I think people realize time is sort of running out, so we might as well get started. And there's no way for us to know exactly when, obviously, the H-1B cap will be reached. Um, but so if you are planning as an employer or a business to file the petition, now is as good a time as any. And we have seen a much greater increase uh, in the number of new H-1 cap cases within the last few weeks at our firm. Um, now, we've talked a lot in previously about students and F1 students on CAP-GAP, and what does this really mean? CAP-GAP relief, which is students on F1 student status, are, enjoy a certain privilege based on the DHS regulations from around two years ago, I think it was 2008, when if the, it, 
change of status from an F1 OPT was filed to change to H1B, as long as the USCIS had accepted the petition, then the person could continue to work even if the F1 OPT expired, for example, in August or September or July, any time after April 1 when the petition was filed until October 1. So keep in mind that the cap-gap relief only applies for H-1 petitions which are filed prior to October 1st. Now, we're already in November of 2010, so if the petition is filed after October 1st, the applicant should apply for an immediate start date after the F-1 OPT expires and not wait for the following October 1st. Uh, and the applicant is required to maintain valid non-immigrant status until the requested H-1B start date in the petition. Adam, what happens if the H-1 petition was filed prior to October 1st while the OPT was valid and is pending, even now, because many H-1 petitions are now taking several months to get processed, but the F-1 OPT has now expired? Can this individual continue to work no. under the cap-gap relief? No, unfortunately not, and an employer is not authorized to continue employing that person and having that person perform work. An F-1 student will need to stop working when the OPT ends, or on October 1st, whichever is later, if the H-1B petition has not yet been approved. So the student may be working for the H-1B employer once the H-1B petition is approved and a change of status takes effect on the requested start date. So all they could do, try to do premium processing to get a quick answer, but Exactly. Again, and mm -hmm. so in this situation, the student may remain in the United States while the petition is pending, uh, but cannot work during, during this time. And when the petition is approved, then they can start working. Okay. And Anna, how long does it take the USCIS to adjudicate these H-1 petitions? It um, depends because there are USCIS treats um, regular petitions and petitions uh, filed in this cap gap scenario a little bit differently. Um, they have indicated that they are placing a higher priority on adjudication of H-1B uh, cap subject petitions that were filed by students in the cap gap or, or on behalf of students in the cap gap period. And we've seen um, those adjudicated um, faster in a, in a um, more expedited fashion than regular petitions. The H-1B CAP subject petitions that were filed in June 2010, um, USCIS is adjudicated um, now according to their uh, time frame uh, posted on their website. Okay. Great. And of course, as we said, you know, premium processing, 15 days. And if you're doing the premium processing, you pay the additional money, the f extra fees, um, as a thanksgiving. Right, and thanksgiving. if there are, and I would just say that in line with our discussion at the beginning of this, um, reco this recording about the increase in the fees, remember that the new fees will take effect on November 23, 2010. So if there are H-1B petitions that a company has pending with USCIS and one is considering premium processing, it would be a um, efficient use of the premium processing service to file that request prior to November 23rd. That means USCIS should receive it before November 23rd in order to avoid having to pay $1,225. Okay, thank you. Um, a little bit now, there's been some latest developments with this whole H-1B portability doctrine and E-Verify. Uh, we all thought the rule was very clear under the American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act or AC-21 law. An employer, an employer was allowed to legally hire an employee 
who was ever previously on H-1B, had an H-1B visa or H-1B status. So if back five years ago I had an H-1B and then I switched to an H-4 and then I now my employer wants to file a new H-1, potentially the way the law is written, person should and would be allowed to start working. However, there's a glitch in the E-Verify system uh, which no longer allows this uh, and there's some concern. So Adam, would you ex ex describe that a little bit? Well, when the H-1B employer is using E-Verify and so the company needs to receive confirmation from, from E-Verify for the beneficiary to work while the petition is pending, they've recently, the system and the program office has recently confirmed that it will not provide uh, employment authorization verification for an employee who's working under H-1B portability where the employee previously held H-1B status and so the person arguably is able to take advantage of H-1B portability, but since that H-1B time, the person's status has since changed. For example, it might be somebody who had been in H-1B status and switched to perhaps, let's say, F-1 or L status, and now has the company has filed a petition to change that person's status back to H-1B. E-Verify bases their reasoning on USCIS's interpretation of the H-1B portability law saying that it only applies to someone who is currently in H-1B status, not in another status changing back to H-1B. And so E-Verify has said they will continue to issue final non-confirmations in these cases. Okay, thank you, Adam. Uh, I know this has upset a lot of people because this was not what the government position, what the actual statute says, what they've said all throughout in various meetings with the American Immigration Lawyers Association. So, Anna, can this E-Verify sort of interpretation or protocol be challenged and what steps should an employer take? For example, if they've already been hiring somebody um, with this, uh, if they didn't have one subject to E-Verify. As you mentioned, Sheila, yes, we are um, of the opinion that the, this uh, type of reasoning is flawed and erroneous because the law clearly allows this type of um, employment um, under the portability provision. So, yes, it is, uh, since it's flawed, it uh, may and probably should be challenged. However, until that occurs, it is uh, safest for employee, employees uh, to not begin working with the new employer until after the H-1B petition is approved, especially if the employer is an E-Verify employer. Uh, also, employers and employees may want to consider filing petitions via premium processing uh, in this type of scenario so that the petition is approved um, uh, quicker and the employee may begin working within a couple of weeks of filing the petition if it's approved. Going back to what Adam just mentioned uh, a little while ago, if you consider that uh, you have to file, you should probably file your premium processing application before November 23rd, uh, which will save you a considerable amount of money, $225. Okay, thanks, Sana. Um, for those who are feeling that only H-1Bs were targeted thanks to the January 8, 2010 memo, don't worry. The USCIS is now becoming an equally discriminatory employer or adjudicator adjudicating all kinds of petitions. Um, there's a new policy memo guidance that was provided regarding adjudications of extraordinary ability, national interest waiver, and those kinds of cases. So I'm going to have Anna and Adam describe it 
because again, it shows a trend and it shows a mindset that's a little bit scary because it really, they're re trying to rewrite the rules. So Adam, we'll start with you. What is this new policy guidance? When was it issued and whom does it apply to? Well, the USCIS issued what they called an interim memo that they requested comments on August 18, 2010, called Evaluation of Evidentiary Criteria in Certain I-140 Petitions, specifically for extraordinary ability, outstanding professors or researchers, uh, which are EB-1, national interest waivers, and exceptional ability I-140s, which are EB-2. So the, and for the guidance that the memo provides. Okay, so I'm going to have Anna talk a little bit about the guidance in the two-part analysis, what, you know, the guidance that it specifically provides. So you're saying at this point they're technically just gathering feedback, but they're already applying the standard? Yes, it well, does. The interim memo actually has a little notation on it, in, if I'm not mistaken, in the upper left corner that says that um, it is in effect until further notice. As Adam mentioned, they solicited comments on the memo, and they did receive comments. Uh, they received very good comments from um, American Immigration Lawyers Association. Nothing happened to it um, as of now, as we know, uh, but the memo seems to be in effect because we started uh, seeing the effect of the uh, uh, new trend in adjudication of these types of petitions. Uh, basically, what the memo provides is um, it describes a two-part analysis where the same evidence is first, as a first step, considered in relation to the plain language of the statutory criteria, which is not always the case, but that's what the memo claims to, um, to provide as an adjudication standard. And then it, the same evidence is considered in the context of the final merits determination. USCIS states that the memo is based on a decision that came out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in March 2010, um, namely Kazarian versus USCIS. This case, I should say that this case only mentions the uh, two-part analysis as established by previous case law. Uh, the court did not actually have to apply it because the uh, um, applicant, the petitioner, uh, self-petitioner in this, uh, in that case, did not meet the uh, um, evidentiary criteria, the initial evidentiary criteria. So uh, they did not have to apply the second step um, in their analysis. However, USCIS uh, seems to interpret it, um, this uh, standard in a completely incorrect way because um, they seem to apply in RFEs and notices of intent to uh, uh, deny um, that our office has received. Uh, we have a few in the okay, office okay. right now. They, um, they seem to say, well, even if you didn't meet the evidentiary criteria, then you, we still have to apply the second part of the test, which is incorrect. Okay. So, Adam, have we started seeing USCIS issuing RFEs? We've seen a couple. Uh, USCIS issued a sample RFE, again, asking for comment. Um, we've, we've seen a couple of these RFEs where they're doing the two-part analysis, and we continue to believe and argue that they are applying the wrong standard. Okay. Um, I, I know people are very mindful during these teleconferences to try to wrap them up between 30 to 45 minutes. We're just at 30-minute point, so I would please ask your indulgence to hold on, and we will wrap up in the next 5 to 10 minutes because we are very sensitive that you're taking time in the middle of the, the day to do this. 
and we so appreciate your joining us, but it's important for you to understand how the USCIS is coming back, looking at a law that was passed in 1990 under the Immigration Act of 1990, where the extraordinary ability, the outstanding professor, all of these categories were first introduced, and then 20 years later, in 2010, slipping it in saying, sorry, this was always part of the criteria, this is part of the statute, even when the the multiple cases and multiple over the last 20 years have shown that if you satisfy three out of 10 criteria, you should be able to meet the extraordinary ability test. But now they're coming back and applying totally bizarre, sort of stretching the meaning of things, similar to what they've done with H1s for decades and coming back with the January 2010 memo. So you can see I'm getting excited and passionate about this. But I'm going to have Anna, who, by the way, I think is one of the top experts in the country and does a gazillion of these, because in our firm we have an entire department or team that is focused, a a core group of people that is focused on processing and working on and getting a fantastic approval rating with extraordinary ability, outstanding professor, researchers, which and I should just mention, which I, I, which I should just mention to jump in, that Anna actually was able to get USCIS to reopen a denied case, explaining to them the inappropriateness of that denial, and, and so they reopened it and issued, they issued a notice of intent to deny, but they did reverse that denial on their own. Fantastic. Thank, thank okay, you, so Sheila and Adam, for this wonderful <laughs> introduction. So, um, so what's the standard that they apply, Anna? Well, the standard that they apply, um, that's, uh, you know, that, that's supposed to be a two-part analysis. And um, before the case that they, um, they say that the memo is based on, there was some uh, case law that required that once the petitioner has established that he or she meets the necessary number of criteria, uh, USCS must find that he or she meets all of the requirements unless, and that's only when the second part of the test uh, should be applied, unless USCIS sets forth specific and substantial reasons for its finding that the alien, despite having satisfied the criteria, does not meet the standard. USCIS seems to ignore the standard, so they misapply it. Okay, so as long as they can show that, they're okay, but now, so a person that satisfied three out of 10 or two out of six, technically should satisfy it unless the USCIS can specifically and substantially explain the reasons why the person does not meet the statutory criteria for exactly. the ones of OPRs. Exactly. Okay, continue. Um, also, what we've noticed is that when uh, USCIS does apply the second part of, the, of um, this new um, adjudication standard, they uh, seem to require that the person meets the uh, qualifying standard based on each uh, individual criterion instead of applying it to the overall eligibility of the beneficiary. So here I think they are also getting it wrong because there is no, under the statute, uh, under the regulations, there is no specific uh, requirement that the person would meet the standard of uh, reaching the very top of the field, such as in the case of extraordinary ability petitions, based on a single criterion such as publications or original contributions. There is no such thing, uh, but they seem to require that the person meets this um, unbelievable uh, standard, which simply does not exist for most of the petitioners. Okay. 
Okay, and so they're talking both about the individual now having to meet each and every single one of the criteria and satisfying the at the top of the field. Well, instead of applying it, it to the overall eligibility of the beneficiary? In, in, um, within their second um, step of uh, the adjudication process, they seem to, um, they seem to apply their own standard uh, to which now they apply to each single criterion instead of taking all of the evidence together. Okay. So as you can see that the government, uh, the USCIS is really trying to clamp down I know at one of the uh, American Immigration Lawyers Association Washington, D.C. chapter meetings, the, the head of the service center of the Vermont, the then Vermont Service Center, pointed out how the number of these kinds of petitions have increased by 80%, so their denials have concurrently increased by 80%. And so when you look at that scary statistic, it's pretty frightening because the government's almost trying to fit a round peg into a square hole by saying we want to deny it, so let's come up with some good reasons how we can stretch the rule. And Kazarian was a fabulous excuse because they didn't even apply the test in Kazarian, but the USCIS has managed to create a whole memo and start to revisit the entire issue based on the Kazarian case. In fact, uh, Kazarian, if I may add just um, a little bit to so that you have the uh, um, background, on this case, Kazarian was um, actually held that USCS may not impose um, unilaterally novel uh, evidentiary criteria. And that's what uh, a lot of practitioners like us used Kazarian before USCS uh, came up with this interim memo in which they claimed that Kazarian actually held um, something else, which is now this two-part test. Okay, so if you're ready to pull your hair out because you're really getting annoyed with the government, then you need the best law firm and the best team of lawyers on your side. Of course, we here at the Murthy Law Firm would be honored and delighted if there's anything we can do to help you in filing your petitions, H's, L's, green cards, guiding you, advising you, supporting you. And even if you can't hire us because you have in-house lawyers or some other lawyer, hopefully who's doing a good job for you and guiding you, um, then you're welcome to take advantage of all the fabulous, wonderful, free resources that we provide on Murti.com, like the Bulletin, the Chat, the Murti Forum, the Murti Bulletin, and the free Murti teleconferences. And if you're listening today, you obviously know about these monthly teleconferences on the first Wednesday of each month from 2 p.m. Eastern or 11 a.m. Pacific time for 30 to 45 minutes. We invite you to continue and to invite all your friends and colleagues to take part. But if you're listening to our free seminar and not your lawyers, it might be a, a good reason to consider getting a second opinion or checking us out or working with us. Um, we have an incredible team of 70-plus attorneys, professional staff, paralegals, and we are here to exclusively take care of you here in the U.S. And we have another 20 people in Chennai, India, for anybody who's stuck with visa-related issues, whose family members are stuck with B1, B2 denials, when your parents get stuck, family members. And as a team, our goal is to take fabulous care of you, to do A-plus work at a very reasonable and competitive fee, and to continue to guide you through the ever-changing and complex, ridiculously trying rules that the government's pushing. So thank you for joining us today in the Hot Topics and Current Issues uh, teleconference. On behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, and Adam Rosen, and Anna, and our entire team at the Murthy Law Firm, we look forward to having you join us next month, and we look forward to continuing to guide you. Have a great day.